There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. After really one of the most eventful weeks that I remember in recent NFL history. I mean, how in the world did the New York Giants win in Seattle with Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones not playing in the game? I mean, you're going to have to do a deep dive on that, Mr. and Mrs. Analytics. Um, And then, obviously, how did Washington beat Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh And I'll tell you what, we're going to talk about Pittsburgh in a second, but wow, that was a real weird one. But anyway, we're going to get to some of the news of the week. Uh, Our guest this week, uh, Greg Cosell of NFL Films, does a fantastic job of breaking down the good and the bad uh, in film study of NFL players. He's going to be along to dissect why Carson Wentz is not going to be the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles when they face uh, the New Orleans Saints this weekend and why Jalen Hurts will be. And also we'll get to Mike Sando, my friend, uh, my compatriot who works at The Athletic. He does a Monday column just like I do, only I just get so much out of his column. I love his columns because they're so thoughtful, they're so different. And he wrote something this week when I read it <laughs> during the day on Monday, it said, I said, I gotta get him on the podcast because he wrote about how, if you're a team with an under 500 record, would you rather make the playoffs even as a fourth seed in the playoffs or would you rather have a draft pick that would be 10 or 12 spots higher in the first round? And I read that and I said, I want to make the playoffs. Are you kidding me? So Mike and I will get into that. We had a good discussion about it. Mike is so smart. You'll learn something from listening to Mike Sando. So the other thing uh, that I wanted to touch on just briefly uh, before we get into our conversations uh, is the Pittsburgh Steelers. And this is not to say that the Steelers – Um, are going to go crashing and burning out of the playoffs. I don't mean to say that at all. Um, But I do think that this is a very worrisome time for Pittsburgh, not only because they lost to Washington 23-17, to but because they got to go to Buffalo. 
And, you know, to me, when I look at the Steelers and I say, what's a bad matchup for them right now? I mean, a physical defense with a physical secondary like Buffalo has. The same style of defense in terms of physicality uh, as the Steelers have. But I, I think that is a tough matchup situation. And then if you think about the Steelers, you know, they still have Indianapolis and Cleveland on the schedule. And, and again, you don't know what the future holds in the last four weeks of the season. But I'll tell you, here's the one thing about the Steelers after doodling with the numbers a little bit. The last two weeks, Ben Roethlisberger has thrown 53 and 51 passes. They have had a 75-25 pass-run ratio in Pittsburgh. And look, you've seen the games. They beat Baltimore in a game that they played lousy. Um, they lost to Washington in a game they played lousy. They have 13 dropped passes in the last two weeks. Um, and to me... I think one of the most misleading stats right now is that Roethlisberger has gone five games without being sacked. Oh, offensive line must be playing great. I talk about this with Mike Sando a little later. But that's not a sign that his offensive line is playing great. It is a sign that he's getting rid of the ball faster than any quarterback in football, I'm sure. Um, and basically, because his running game isn't doing anything, you know, last two weeks, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, home, you know, with with a, with alums like Franco Harris and Jerome Bettis and Le'Veon Bell, the last two weeks in significant games as an undefeated team, Steelers have rushed for eighty nine yards. This this is worrisome right now. It's worrisome, and I don't expect them to stay down. But this is a time where Mike Tomlin and I think especially Randy Feekner, the offensive coordinator, have really got to get on the drawing board in a short week and try to figure out how in the world they're going to be able to get some offense going in Buffalo. You know, really, the only good thing for the Steelers in that trip up to Buffalo is they won't have 70,000 insane fans at that stadium because – Obviously, because of COVID, you know, most stadiums in the NFL are empty this year, and that's going to be the case, obviously, in Western New York. And can you imagine what that stadium would be like this week if, if the stadium was full? Wow. Would that be an incredible Sunday night football game on NBC? It'll still be a great football game. The atmosphere just will be a little bit different. So, um, Let's get to Greg Cosell to talk about really the big news of Carson Wentz being benched and Doug Peterson choosing Jalen Hurts to be his starting quarterback, starting with four games left in this game against the New Orleans Saints. So happy to be joined this week on the podcast by Greg Cosell of NFL Films. Uh, and Greg, I... I was struck today, as we record this on Tuesday afternoon, I was struck today by what I considered, and maybe you'll have a different view than, than I will, 
But what I consider to be a fairly decisive move by uh, by Doug Peterson of the Eagles in naming Jalen Hurts as starting quarterback, not that I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a very good idea. But I know that there's a lot of pressure on Doug Peterson and inside that team uh, to get Carson Wentz right and to make this move right now. I doubt it's only for one week. To make this move now basically said, we'll worry about Carson Wentz in the offseason. You know, and who knows? He may play some. But just give me your view of how you see this. Well, all I can do, Peter, is speak to what the film shows. And the film speaks to the fact that it was probably the right move. I, I never look to, to say that players should be benched. But when you're a quarterback... And there's a couple of things that stand out when you watch the tape, and that's what I do. Number one, Carson Wentz was not seeing things clearly at all. And when you're not seeing things clearly, that's a real problem for a quarterback. Um, number two, he was at the point, and, and you can say the offensive line was poor, and it has been poor, but even if that's the case, you cannot perceive and anticipate pressure. So the result of that is, Peter, that you hit your back foot, you don't even plant your back foot, you move the second your back foot hits the hits that, that plant step, you move. And that's what Carson Wentz was starting to do. So when you combine those two things, the fact that you're not seeing things clearly, so you're leaving throws on the field within the structure of the offense, and the fact that you're anticipating and perceiving pressure and therefore moving when you should not be moving – it's very difficult to play quarterback that way with any kind of efficiency at all, and it breaks down your offense. Now, I will say this. There's other issues as well. It's It's been a real problem in pass protection all year long. I think they've played more offensive linemen or more offensive line combinations than any team in the league. One thing that clearly stands out on tape is their receivers really struggle to create any kind of separation and win versus man-to-man -man coverage. So there's many things that go into this, and of course we know how it plays out with the quarterback. It all ends up being on the quarterback, and believe me, I'm not suggesting Carson Wentz does not have his share of blame. Right now, he has a lot of blame because you can't play the position with those two things I mentioned. What's the biggest difference between the Carson Wentz pre-injury 2017 and the Carson Wentz you examine on film in 2020? Uh, I would say a couple of things. Number one, he was very decisive. And when you're decisive, it means you're seeing things and you're processing things at a high level. The term I like to use is eliminate and isolate. When you're when you're decisive, you're eliminating what's not there and isolating what is there within the structure and timing of the route concepts. And he did that extremely well. He did it even as a rookie in 2016. Number two, what goes with being decisive is the willingness to turn it loose. He was a turn it loose thrower, and he's by no means a turn it loose thrower now. In fact, he's extremely tentative. Um, he was very strong and tough in the pocket. That was another strength of his game. He would stand there, bodies around him. He would take shots. No one can question his toughness even now, but, but there's different kinds of toughness at the quarterback position. And he would stand and deliver with bodies around him, even taking shots. And he doesn't quite do that now because he's perceiving and anticipating pressure.
when I remember him from 2017 on his classic run before he got hurt in the LA Coliseum against the Rams, I remember a guy who was ultra confident outside the pocket. Yes. And even though maybe he ran a little bit too much, okay, he still was so confident when he left the pocket. And when you use the word decisive, I think it's the perfect word for 2017 Carson Wentz. When he was going, he was going because he had seen evidence that it's better for him to go than it is for him to stay. And I would say the one other word, just watching him, he was incredibly confident yep. for such a young player that I used to, I remember I used to go to Eagles games and I, I asked him this a couple of times. I said, where, where is this, where's this confidence come from? You know, because obviously you think of a guy from that level of competition coming into the NFL, it's like he had it. And I think, again, Greg, you you talked about this a little bit. When I watch him now, I think he's seeing ghosts. Yeah, he's, he's know, extremely tentative. And, yeah. and it's funny you mentioned him moving out of the pocket. There's a balance there, Peter. Um, a lot of really good quarterbacks in this league do move out of the pocket and make plays. We see more and more quarterbacks do that. But there's a balance because if you leave the pocket – when you shouldn't leave the pocket, one of the things that can often happen is you move yourself into pressure. And now he's doing that. Um, if you if you do it at the right time, and that's what I mean, it's a very fine balance and there's, it's not quantifiable. It's not a mathematical equation. But if you do it at the right time, then you leave the pocket and then there are plays to be made. But if you do it at the wrong time, very often you create your own pressure by moving into pressure. And the other point I'd make, is in 2016, 2017, he might have missed a few here and there, but he was not an inaccurate passer. He right. made a lot of really difficult, tough throws with precise ball placement. And right now, he does not have precise ball placement. And maybe that stems from confidence. That We'd have to be in his head to know that, but the results are there on tape. Can Carson Wentz be fixed? And if so, how? Well, to me, and I learned all this from many smart people, smarter than I am, Peter, going back to, to Bill Walsh, who I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time with, you know, going back 15, 20 years, uh, even longer, actually. I think it starts with rebuilding his mechanics because Carson Wentz, and he's always been like this to some extent, and that's why it needs to be rebuilt and start over and every and an everyday thing. He tends to be an overstrider, Peter. And because he's not by nature a truly compact thrower, like let's say an Aaron Rodgers, when you're an overstrider and you're not a compact thrower, your arm then has to catch up to your overstride. So you end up rushing your arm motion. And then when you rush your arm motion to catch up, two things result. You don't transfer your weight because you can't because your feet are too wide. And the result is there's a lot of sailed throws. And we, we've seen that with Carson Wentz. So you need to start over. It reminds me of a story with our good friend, Ron Jaworski. He'd been in the league seven years, and Dick Vermeil brought in Sid Gilman, the father of the modern-day modern passing game, to work with him. And Sid Gilman started with the snap under center. And here Jaws had been in the league seven years. So you would think, we don't have to start with the snap, 
but that's where Sid Gilman started. And I think Carson Wentz needs that kind of start over, that rebuild. Reminds me a little bit of Kenton, Kendall Hinton's story. He was on the podcast last week. You know, the I'm sure the one-start Denver quarterback. <laughs> and Kendall Hinton, said, I said, describe what you did on Saturday and then Sunday morning before the game. And he goes, well, it started with how I was going to call a play in the huddle. Right. You know, because obviously they're very long plays in the Pat Shermer offense, and he doesn't know them. So they right, 10% of the plays. And so he had to, it, it, Mike Shula said, enunciate clearly. And I mean, I'm thinking, Things you never think about the New Orleans right. Saints tomorrow. And you're telling a guy how to call a play in the huddle. No, and it's the, and it's things you never think. You know, we always assume. And another great story, by the way, that does relate to Bill Walsh. He told me that Joe Montana had just finished his first year in Kansas City. So he was already a first ballot Hall of Famer. And Joe Montana called up Coach Walsh, and he still called him Coach Walsh, after that first year in Kansas City. And I believe Coach Walsh was out of the game at that point, out of the NFL anyway. And Joe said to him, Coach, I felt like my mechanics were a little sloppy this past season. Can I come visit you when you can really tighten them up? Wow. So think about that. It was his first year in Kansas City. He's already a first ballot Hall of Famer. Wow. You know, think of the, the Tom Brady's of the world. Tom yeah. Brady, what is his game built on? Repetitive mechanics. The same thing, snap after snap after snap, unless the defense truly prevents you from doing that. You should throw the ball the same way every single time. Uh, give me your quick scouting report on Jalen Hurts. What can people expect from the new quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles? Well, I think what you'll see, particularly this particular week against a Saints defense that plays a lot of man coverage and is really good at it, um, and the Eagles receivers struggle to win versus man, I think you'll see him running a lot because I think he won't feel comfortable with what he's seeing, and and he'll have he won't feel comfortable having to make really stick throws, precise stick throws into very small windows. So I think he'll run a lot. I think the Saints will know that. So they'll, with their rush, they'll try to keep him in the pocket. They might even spy him. Uh, so I think you'll see him make some great running plays. Uh, I don't know about the pass game at this point. We'll see. You know, last week he made some plays, but it was very evident that he would drop back. He'd look at the first read, and if it wasn't there, he just took off. Which, by the way, that's perfectly normal for a young quarterback who's got great legs and can always run and has done that his whole career. So that's not a negative at this point on Jalen Hurts. But that's what I think you'll see in his first game, particularly against the Saints defense. I'll tell you, it's tough when you walk into your first start and it's against the Saints, who've been playing so well on defense in recent weeks and frustrating some really good quarterbacks. Without question. I kind of feel for the kid, but, you know, the one thing I remember, and I'm not a huge college football watcher, this guy was not afraid of anything. No, he's a competitive kid. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll have to throw the football, and he will. And uh, and I'm sure he'll make a few throws. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, obviously, I would assume, and you you know the, the people better than I do, I would think it'll still be Taysom Hill. You know, we're talking on a Tuesday. Yeah. I, I can't imagine they put Drew out this week when the following week they've got the Chiefs. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. All right, Greg, we got our lightning round now. Oh, ask, oh, boy, I feel like this is a I, test. I have my number two pencil. I'm going to ask you five questions. 
and you're going to answer each question in 30 seconds or less. Are you ready? Oh, All right. Here we go. Number one, what worries you most right now about the Pittsburgh Steelers? Their offense, totally out of kilter. You can't ask your quarterback to drop back 50 times a game by choice. That You know how to play the lightning round. My candidate for most underrated, unknown star of the 2020 season is Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams. Six consecutive games, that defense has held quarterbacks under an 81 passer rating when the NFL average right now is about 94. What is it about the Rams' defense and about Staley in particular that you like? Well, they play defense a little differently. They're more than willing to play with a light box, meaning six in the box. They play a ton of quarters, coverage, cover four. And then, of course, they have the slot corner outside the box. So they've taken a slightly different approach, and it's working. Justin Jefferson, if I had to vote today, would be my offensive rookie of the year. Analyze why Justin Jefferson has stepped in and been great from day one. He's totally exceeded my expectations as an outside receiver. He's got tremendous stride length. He has a nuanced, detailed feel for route running, uh, and he's got really good hands. Josh Allen on the run with his arm is so incredibly dangerous right now. I think the Buffalo Bills have the ability to be this year's Tennessee Titans. Give me your Buffalo Bills analysis in 30 seconds. It all starts with Josh Allen. I think his ball placement has improved dramatically. The biggest issue with him was routine throws. He'd missed too many of them. This year, his ball placement has dramatically improved. I thought he played his best half of this of his career the other night against uh, San Francisco and, and ultimately the best game of his career, and it was all a function of ball placement. His throw, by the way, to Cole Beasley running out of the box, probably 35 yards down the air, right on Cole Beasley's numbers. I thought his best throw of his entire career, he hit – Gabriel Davis on a dig oh, yeah. ball right yeah. over Fred Warner's fingertips. Yes. I thought that's arguably the best throw of his career. Yeah. Okay, finally, who wins the NFC East and why? Oh, boy. The NFC East. I'm trying to think of all the teams now. That You know, the Saints <laughs> – <laughs> um th that's a hard one uh, the lightning round I i'm i'm falling down on my last lightning round question i don't have a really good answer for that peter that would be pure speculation and garbage and bs and i just okay. don't have a really good answer for that let me ask you the question in this way okay the new york giants defense it's right good. now with all these unknown characters why does it work so well well, they play a ton of zone coverage. They don't play a lot of man. Um, they're getting, uh, they're doing really well in terms of their front four and their ability to pressure. They're highly disciplined. Uh, and I think that that's kind of what defense is. There's many ways to play defense. You can pressure, you can play coverage. You know, they're more of a coverage-based defense. It's It's been very, very effective. And they, they have some unsung players, too, on that defense who are playing really well, like the rookie corner from UCLA. Darnay Holmes has played very, very well for them. Carter Coughlin. I mean, there's all these guys. Tay Crowder. Leonard Williams is finally playing the way that everybody thought 
he would play one day, but anyway. And they have Jabal Sheard now. They have yeah. Dexter Lawrence, who's played extremely well. You know, all those big guys up front, Dalvin Tomlinson, B.J. Hill, tough team to run against. Not pure pass rushers, but Williams is giving them a pass rush. And they're, by the way, they're very multidimensional with their fronts. That's the Joe Judge, Bill Belichick influence. Their fronts, they're really multidimensional with what they do with their alignments up front. Greg Cosell, you're the best, and I really appreciate it. You did a much better job on the lightning round than I expected. You know oh, what? Well, well who, who has not done a good job, Peter? Well, <laughs> actually, you are the first one I've done the lightning round with in about two months. Well, uh, God, I'm, I'm honored. So, I'm honored. So many topics I wanted to get to with you, and I still have about 19. But anyway, we're going to leave it here for today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And uh, we will be watching a very interesting Eagles team this weekend and what happens with Jalen Hurts. Thanks, Peter. I really appreciate it. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you do for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. And now my conversation with a man I respect greatly, Mike Sando of The Athletic. Back on the podcast, really happy to be joined by Mike Sando of The Athletic, one of the guys I respect most in this business, Um, a good friend of mine. Uh, We are Hall of Fame uh, voting compatriots. And uh, Mike writes such a good, analytical, smart column every every Monday morning uh, at The Athletic. And uh, after I wake up uh, mid-morning, uh, it's my first click uh, whenever I see it, whenever I see it land. But anyway, Mike, appreciate you joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad that you're a, a reader. And I understand that I actually maybe had to write something bad and be off base for you to want to have me on. So <laughs> no, I am... part of my strategy to get more publicity, you know? <laughs> no, I actually, um, not that I have actually a short list next to my, uh, on my desk next to where I work, but all year I've been saying, I got to get Mike on my podcast because 
any week we could have a deep discussion about almost anything. But you wrote something this week I thought was really, really interesting and very thought-provoking that the headline of your column was, the Giants are on track to win the NFC East, but that will come at a cost. And so, uh, you know, basically you raised the point that the Giants beating Seattle and moving into position to perhaps win the NFC East uh, is going to be very good and sort of a shot of adrenaline for their for their uh, for their fans who, you know, the only thing they've had to cheer in recent years is fire Gettleman, fire McAdoo, fire Shermer, you know, that's yeah. what's gotten them going. But but this time uh, they've actually won a few games and they won a huge game in Seattle. And I'm going to let you, if you don't mind, sort of go into some of the reasons about why you think in this particular case where they might have a 500 or sub 500 record um, make the playoffs, but then be in a, a significantly lower position in the draft, yeah. maybe by eight or 10 spots or more uh, yeah. than, than they would be. But give yeah. me your, give me your take on why you see that as a dangerous thing. Well, since I since I wrote this, the NFC East is on fire. Washington's winning. I mean, heck, it's not of an embarrassing division anymore. But yeah. my premise was basically this: that um, it's okay. Like, like if you're gonna if you're gonna win a, a division with an especially bad record, okay. Let's just say if we looked at the Giants' schedule and said, "Hey, you beat Seattle, but we're gonna not continue winning games," which they may. I mean, they may be a 500 team. But if you were to have a five and eleven or six and ten division winner, which this division's been historically bad. Uh, they were six and twenty-one or something coming into this weekend. Um, then you really could have such a big spread. You could be you could go from picking fifth to seventh overall to nineteen to twenty-one. A very unusual shift um, brought about by the fact that if you make the playoffs, you can't pick earlier than nineteen. So what I thought was interesting about the column was I just took the last fifteen drafts and I I. Uh, drafted two rosters. So on one hand, you had a roster of only players taken five to seven. So you're getting Jalen Ramsey, you're getting Julio Jones. Uh, you'll have a couple misses in there, but you're getting Khalil Mack. Uh, you're getting real franchise difference makers that people would trade to and have traded two number ones for, right? And and if you pick and you get quarterbacks, you're going to get Josh Allen. You're going to get a swing at Herbert. Uh, you may miss on a Mark Sanchez, whatever. But um, if you pick 19 to 21, you're getting the best tight end, you're getting the best center, or you're really taking a chance on somebody who has a lot of talent but fell for whatever reason. So my point was if, if the disparity is that big, there is a real trade-off. I'm not saying tank or you, you shouldn't try to win or you shouldn't revel in it, but I went back to Seattle in 2010. Great example. They would have picked eighth in a draft with J.J. Watt, in a draft with, uh, uh, I believe, Robert Quinn. There was MVP-type guys there. But instead, they picked 25th because they actually won a playoff game. I don't think Pete Carroll would give that away. I think he loved the Beastquake run. He would say they built the program off of it, all the things Joe Judge would say and feel. But at the end of the day, they won because they got Russell Wilson. 
know what I mean? True. It's yeah, true. It's true. So it's a, to me, it's an interesting trade-off, and I, I think that's what it is. If you have a good record and win the division, if they get to eight and eight, then throw away my column. But but if you're five or six wins, um, I would rather be the second place team in some cases if I'm going to get a swing at a quarterback. Look at the Eagles; they may want a quarterback. You know, it would be better for them to not win the division. Yeah, I'll tell you. I thought it was really interesting and thought-provoking, as I said. And one of the things that I did after I read your column, I was just sitting around yesterday afternoon, and I went and looked at my first reaction was, he's absolutely unequivocally wrong. And the first player I thought of was Justin Jefferson, okay? You know, who obviously this year was the 22nd pick in the draft. No doubt. And you could argue, like what I did was I went and I looked at, let's look at four pick pods okay. between eight and 11. Because look, it looks like the Giants are going to be, let's say, six and 10 or seven and nine. That's how it would look to me. Let's say they'd be seven and nine, because to me, seven and nine means you're uh, you know, you, you'd go two and two right. down the stretch, which the way they've been playing, winning four in a row, is not unrealistic. But anyway, so yeah. let's just say they went seven and nine. Well, seven and nine is usually around, what, 10 or 11 in the draft. Yep. Okay, maybe 12. And to me, when I look at that number versus what I'm going to be picking at 19, 20 in that area, and also the pool of players. I mean, you know, that's one of the other issues that I have with doing a thing like this. It's that let's just say, uh, you know, you're you're picking uh, you're picking where you had it on this list, and you are saying in essence that picks five through seven. I I would want to say who's available at picks five through seven, not who was taken at five through seven. Right. Like, and same thing at 19, from 19 to 21, who's available? Like, I can't think of many people who would have taken Jay, just uh, Jalen Rager over uh, Justin Jefferson, but the Eagles right. did. But still, the majority of teams that needed a receiver, if they had the 21st pick in the draft this year, they would have taken Justin Jefferson. But be that as it may, I think my whole issue the bigger issue is, why are you in sports? To win. Why? What, you're in sports to win, and you're in sports to do what the Tennessee Titans did last year. Okay? And I only bring up the Titans because they were the lowest seed in the AFC. They went to New England on wild card weekend and legitimately beat the Patriots. They went to Baltimore on divisional weekend and thrashed the top seed in the AFC. Now, I'm not saying that the New York Giants, or let's say Washington, I'm yeah. not saying either of those teams will, for instance, beat Tampa Bay in the first game. And then in the second game, uh, you know, go to um, go to Green Bay or go to New Orleans and win that game. But yeah. If they're hot, they might. And, and I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, it's easy yeah. to sit back here and clinically say, I'd much rather have the 
<clears throat> the seventh pick in the draft than the than the nineteenth. Yeah. But I just I just wouldn't. I'd rather well, have. Well, yeah, you're not going to try to do it. Potential the, fun of January. At the risk, you know, I guess the, I haven't risen to the level where I write my own headlines on the column. But I think the takeaway from the column is more than the Giants. I think it was a great week for the NFC East because I think the, yeah. the more the Giants win, that's great. But if you're one of those other teams that isn't going to win it, it's great to not win it because don't win it and be bad and don't have something going, right? If the Giants can win and have a good thing going, more power to them. They can build off of that. And, and I wrote it thinking Washington was going to lose to Pittsburgh. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? So I thought it could have been a great weekend for the division. Good for the Giants. They win. They're building. You like what Joe Judge is doing. And great for everyone else because they have less of a chance to win it when they don't have something going. And you don't want to be double penalized by having a bad record, no mojo, and you're picking 20th. To me, that's the triple whammy yeah. that could happen to it. And I think with the Giants winning, that's much less likely to happen that one of these teams that has nothing going on ends up picking 20th and doesn't get an elite player. Yeah. You can find, you can go back in any draft, Peter, and say, well, look, you can find a good player at 21. We can go back and pick them out now, but look at the two rosters in my column. You know, I've got it over here on this screen, but like, one of them is a bunch of Hall of Famers, and the other one's a bunch of 19 through 21s, tight ends and centers. You know, yes, you'll get an occasional Chandler Jones, but it's a diamond in the rough. You know, it's really not the high probability that you're going to do, even if you can point out one guy you like in a given draft. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a good it's a good conversation, though. I mean, I, I just like to, to kind of think of it that way. One of the executives I quoted in the piece was like, I don't give a rip if the difference is between 19 and 13. If I'm picking 19 or 13, who cares? But if I'm talking about 20, 21, or six or seven, then, you know, maybe we think about it. Not trying to lose, but think about what you'd rather have. Yeah, I would unequivocally, in any case, want to make the playoffs. Not because I think I can win the Super Bowl, yeah, but because I think it's better for your program than, like, if you, if you, I, I honestly think if you asked, any coach, any general manager on August 1st going into a season, I'll yeah. give you a choice. You can be seven and nine and win your division this year and have a home playoff game on January 10th. Or you can go uh, seven and nine, finish third in your division, draft 11th, and be in a much better draft position. Or even, you know, whatever, even five and eleven and draft sixth. And I I would bet, I would bet that if not all, the vast majority of people on August first would say, give me the playoff appearance. Yeah. I think I think too, I think people personalize it. And you get something almost intangible out of that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I and I think you can then you can spin it however you want. You know, like I the Seattle example is perfect. They'll yeah. say Seven and nine, we got the Beast Quake run. Unbelievable for our city. Unbelievable for our franchise. Now, this year, you're not going to have fans there. This yeah. year, you're not going to get the, as much of a tangible benefit. So mm -hmm. if you're a total also around, you might, you, you might in a lost season that people are going to write off anyway because of the pandemic, you may be better off with the pick. But yeah. um, it kind of depends to me how big that shelf is. You know, I mean, what, at what point, would Peter, would you rather have the sixth pick? How low would the pick have to go? For you to say, give me the sixth pick, as opposed to a one-and-done playoff scenario. Well, I guess if I were, if it were a normal year, and 
you said one and done, but I have a home playoff game. In a normal year, Rick Gosselin had a great note uh, today that <clears throat> through 13 weeks, home teams are two games below 500 this yeah. year. But but I think if you were to say, you know, not you could be the seventh seed, yeah. but you could be the fourth seed and have a home playoff game, there's a really good chance that no matter where the draft pick was, unless I was in a situation where I needed a quarterback and I knew that there were three really good quarterbacks in the draft this year. The Giants, I don't think, will draft a quarterback. So there's no way that I would I would I would do exactly what the Giants are doing, which is trying to win a historically bad division. Absolutely. And that's what they should do. I mean, no one should try to lose the game. Yeah. It's, it is more of a theoretical, what would you rather have as opposed to what would you rather try for? Of course, you're going to try. You're going to, you're, you're in a race. You're going to try to win the race, right? I mean, there's a, there's a dignity and an integrity to the game that I think does matter. And, and that's why when you talk about tanking or, you know, was the Dolphins tanking, those are organizational big picture decisions of how we're, what quarterback we're going to play or, or who we're going to cut this off season. Once you, are in the season, you're trying to win no matter what, right. scratching and clawing. And I think I think all the teams do that. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about just your column and your thought process. Like people in our business really know you um, as a thoughtful guy. I mean, you you write one or two things every week that I say, not only that I wish that I had written that, but I wish I had seen that. Like you had a section of your column this week on what a bad uh, the 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 snap to Deshaun Watson that lost the game against Indianapolis. In part, that snap was made, uh, or that fumble happened because Deshaun Watson was in no position to field a bad punt. His feet were out of sequence, out of order. And you saw that somehow. And I wonder, I want you to take me, and you wrote about it. And you quoted a quarterback's coach who said, I mean, basically, that was terrible mechanics by Deshaun Watson. I want you to take me from the word go and tell me, how'd you think of doing that? Um, well, during the course of the day, I'm in contact with just a lot of people that uh, are either they, they already had their games earlier in the day, or they're playing Monday, or they're or there it could be, you know, coaches who uh, are even sitting out this year or whatever. You know, I just ha I know a lot of people that were in contact during the games, you know, whatever texting or sometimes it'd be a call between games. And so sometimes we're just talking about like, hey, what, you know, what stood out to you? And that was just one little nugget of, hey, did you see the end of that game? Did you see, you know, because guys are catching games after their game or they're, yeah. they're going to the, you know, they're watching on their phone or whatever. And so that's something I wouldn't have noticed, you know, like I'm like you, I'm right. not a, I'm not a yeah. coach, you know, <laughs> I'm, the whole, I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there going, that was really cool of Deshaun Watson to say that's on me. You know, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, he's standing up for that poor center who made the worst snap of his, that could do the worst possible thing in that moment. Right. And I thought it was pretty cool, but yeah, who you're talking to and stuff for me helps notice some things that I can't, you can't like, you know, you can't watch every one of these games in complete detail while you're writing, you know, I've got, I wish you could see how many screens do I have? One, two, three. I have five screens in my office. Wow. You know, multiple games on them. You might see that play, 
but not really. You're not looking at the splits of the offensive right. line. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But a coach might see that game and see seven things that I didn't even think of. So yeah, you know, sometimes you just get lucky of who happened to see a game or you're, you know, what stood out to them. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I thought was really interesting is uh, when you pointed out the, um, when you pointed out the Chargers special teams and how incredibly horrible they were and how horrible they have been. And, you know, look at it this way. Patriots beat them 45 nothing with a starting quarterback who threw for 69 yards. And when they're the guy who had the most catches for the Patriots in the game, James White had three catches for one yard. And so you just say to yourself, it's possible. And I just, this is something I, I wish that this, this had occurred to me. It's possible that the Chargers had the worst special teams game in recent NFL history on Sunday. It is. I mean, you know, you, there's no perfect statistic for special teams, but we know how much the expected points change on every special teams play. So we can measure that. That's what I did. I went into our pretty cool database that True Media has uh, and found that that was, I think, out of what, 11,000 plus games. It's half that many games, but each team, there's two teams per game, you know, 11,000 special teams performances in the last 20 whatever years. It was the worst. So think about that. And here's how you can measure that. So like if you're lining up for a 25-yard field goal, you're expecting to get three points out of that, right? I mean, 99% of the time, you're going to get three points out of a gimme field goal. So your expect your expected points are three points, right? In that situation, Peter, what happens if it gets blocked and run back the other way? The other team gets six. That's a nine point swing. That's yeah. That's not some guy making it up with a pocket protector. Right. That's real football. Yeah. You know, and so you have that happen multiple times. By the end of the game, they were like minus twenty eight points on special teams. Yeah. Those are real points. That's incredible. You know what I mean, isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, you said you have it. It's the worst in 11,026 single-game team performances since 2000, including playoff games, according to True Media's yeah. EPA model. Yeah. It's interesting. But let me, let me ask you one other thing about this, by the way. You know, I have basically kind of gotten it in my head that I think Matt Nagy deserves another year with, wow. with a quarterback he scouts and begins to develop himself with the agreement with Nick Foles that we're bringing in a young quarterback and I want you to be Josh McCown. If you're willing to do that, good. If not, we got to part ways. Okay. Um, and, and so, and that's kind of the way I think they should do it. The reason is because I know how good Matt Nagy is with quarterbacks and how he's really uh, very Andy Reid-ish in so many ways. And, and so, and so, but, but whatever, whatever. The thing about your column with those interesting things that I've mentioned, the other thing that really hit me is that the week after they have their worst defensive performance under Nagy, uh, in what you have expected points added. Yeah. The worst defensive performance that they've had in three years under Nagy uh, in their game against Green Bay. The second they come out and play their second worst. In <laughs> After he rallied the troops. 
for the first time in Nagy's three years there. So that might say to me, he rang the fire alarm and nobody got out of bed. I'm with you. And so I think there's two different ways to look at this. I think you're justified in saying that he sort of, everyone sort of does, I don't know if deserve is the right word, but ideally you would get to, in this business, pick your quarterback and get to work with them and show what you do. But that's not how it works. And really that's not how I fully measure the head coach. I think the head coach uh, has to have a command of the team and the situation. And you just know there's a presidentialness to them when, when the way they discuss this. I feel like in Nagy's case, the disappointing part isn't, I mean, of course, it's that he doesn't have Trubisky playing great, but you, you may be right. Trubisky may not play great for anybody. But where have we seen the, I'm in charge of this whole thing, and here's some evidence that I can fix it, that I can affect positive change, that we have a style of play, that we have a vision for how we want to play offensively, that is sustainable and is going to work. And you know what? Just this one thing this quarterback they gave me is really what's holding us back but you got a chance to advocate for who you're going to bring in there was a ton of quarterbacks available this year and I'm sure if Matt Nagy had said no way Nick Foles we can't do it we captured lightning in a bottle with Philly that's not going to work get me one of these three other guys I think they would have done it yeah but I think instead he probably thought, oh, you know what, Kyle, I love uh, Nick. You know what, we had such a great thing going. Trust me here, you know, we'll get Nick in here. It'll get, if I if we don't get Mitch going, we'll get Nick going. Yeah. And you've kind of had two shots. You had sort of had one shot with the guy that, by the way, when he took the job, I'm sure he was saying, oh, I can get Nick, I can get Mitch going. Do you think they hired him? And he said, I don't think Mitch can play. Yeah. So he already said, I can do it with Mitch. Then he kind of said, I can do it with Nagy or with Foles. And I'm kind of looking at it going, I don't think either one of these guys is playing in outside of the bottom five at quarterback in their division, in their in their league, right? I mean, is it if you rank all the quarterbacks, they're both in the bottom five, probably. So then I would want to hear your then say, okay, why is it going to be different with somebody else? Who are we going to get? You know, we're not going to get Russell Wilson here. We're going to get someone else who has question marks. Yeah. And I want evidence that you made them better. Yeah. That would be the counter, right? Really, really interesting, yeah. um, What worries you right now about the Steelers? They're not explosive at all offensively. And part of that is because they throw so many passes that it really runs. But as I kind of have stacked them up, I think you've got to be able to make big plays and and turn the field and, and turn games offensively. And that's really what all the good teams do. And so a few weeks ago in my column, I stacked up all of the Super Bowl teams in the last 20 years, so whatever, 40 teams. And I just took what percentage of your passes gained more than 15 yards? Because this year, the, the only team that's been lower than the Steelers has been the Jets. Can you believe that? Of all the teams in the league. Wow. Um, so that, to me, was sort of the, a little bit of, I don't know if it's a fatal flaw. It could be a style of play. But I sort of feel like they're a team that um, – They've got a very veteran quarterback who they're probably catering to. Ben Roethlisberger probably wants to stand back there and, and throw it 50 times a game in 1.8 seconds and never get hit. That's probably what all of us, if we were older and, and banged up, would right. want to do. We'd want to make it as easy as possible to play the position. I'm not sure that's going to get it done in the end. I mean, I want to have I want to be able to run the ball some when I need to. I want to be able to 
have a play action game, which I don't even think is, I, I bet you they're in the bottom of play action if you look at the percentage of plays. I want to be able to, with those receivers, hit on big plays. Like I think they might have had six plays in the past game that went over 15 yards. And I, I looked at that. I don't think they've had more than that in the game this season. It's very unusual. So yeah. I want to see that, like a little more horsepower, firepower. I think that's when we all look at them and go, they're they're 11 and 1, but they don't feel like it. I think that's what we mean. Don't we want a little more sizzle? I, I would be happy with – you know, last night after the game, I just I did a few a lot of times after a game, when it's fresh in my mind, I start to just write things down and try to figure things out. And so I, I just looked at I looked at the Steelers and I said, there's two really amazing things when you think about the Steelers. Okay, I remember the year that Jerome Bettis, I, I talked to him. He said, hey, listen, we're going to be the first team to run it 60% of the time in years, years. And I, I, I even forget what year this was, honestly. But he's absolutely right. They were the first team to have like a 60-40 run pass ratio in 100 years. Okay, that's a lot of run-oriented football. Over I mean, it's years. it's ridiculous. But but Mike, think of it this way. Think of it this way. All right. So in the last two games, the Steelers have have been seventy-five twenty-five pass run ratio. The Pittsburgh Steelers, yeah, and Mike Tomlin, and believe me, Ben Roethlisberger does not want to throw 104 passes in eight yeah. quarters. That's that's categorically absurd, honestly. Yep. yep. Okay. But the other thing that, you know, last night I heard it in the game, okay, and I thought, now that is incredible, okay? And, you know, you hear it in the game and you, you start to kind of quantify it and start to think about it, but they were talking about, what an incredible run this team was on in sacks, all right? And last night was the fifth consecutive game that Roethlisberger has not been sacked. And the first thing you think of is, oh, my God, that offensive line must be playing incredible. <laughs> well, I don't think they are, all right? He throws the ball so fast. Yeah, he gets – he. you said it a minute ago. I'd say 60% of his passes – have got to be released in less than two seconds. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they have that, you know. Um, our friend Chris Collinsworth, you know, at PFF, they have yeah. that. They have that by the seconds and, and the number of seconds it's taking him on average to throw the ball is way lower than it used to be. And I think that's fine in an individual game plan or something, but that's what I'm talking about. Let's have some longer developing plays. Let's hit some big plays. Let's make it right. easier. If You're not going to be able to go. Someone in the playoffs is going to have a great game plan for you. You know yeah. what I mean? They're going to take away your strength. Yeah. They're going to be in those passing lanes. What's their changeup? What can they do? Yeah. Can they run it for this quarter? You know what I mean? Do they have a drop back pass game where he passed the ball twice and looks for somebody? Because I'm not seeing that. Right. I'm seeing a team that wouldn't shock me at all if they lost in their first playoff game, you know, really, which is amazing for having such a great record. The interesting thing is because now they've lost to an NFC team, 
they're still going to have the tiebreaker if they tie with the Chiefs. Uh, you know, uh, who knows? I mean, you, I don't know who's going to who they're going to lose to if they lose. They to play Buffalo this week. They could lose to Buffalo. You know, they could lose to Buffalo. But what I'm saying is, theoretically, I mean, if they do go 15 and one, and the Chiefs do, Pittsburgh's going to win home field. Which, who, who knows? But I agree with you. They yeah. could lose this week, and if I had to go to Vegas and bet on it, I'd probably bet on the Bills this weekend after. I thought Josh Allen last night was – that's the best game I've ever seen him play. And you see some of the throws he made out of the pocket, on the run. Um, you know, he was he was just great last night. He really, really was great. So, hey, who knows what will happen, but – they're a fascinating team right now. They absolutely are. They absolutely are. Yeah. I don't know if you want to shift into discussion on the Bills, but I, but they are. Yesterday was the first time. This week was one of the first times where I'm watching Josh Allen. And I'm not nervous for the Bills. I mean, decisions. Were an good. excellent I mean, point. Excellent. Excellent. You no, know, I caught myself just enjoying them. I was watching them, yeah. and usually I'm like, "Oh, you know, is he going to? He's so on the edge. You know, it's kind of what makes him fun, but also." Scary, and the right? weird thing is, too, Mike, it's without really a good running game, you know. Yeah, they, but, they, but good play calling, you know. I think you can preserve, you can present the run threat. They have great receivers. Yeah, I just like what they're about, you know. And and watch, Allen will probably throw five picks this week, and we'll all look silly. But you yeah. know, if I can, get, I'll get in a little plug on the podcast I do every week with Randy Mueller. You know, he, and Randy's a former exec of the year. We yeah. have a podcast, the football GM. And he's, he said, I think we're looking at a future MVP in Josh Allen when we recorded yeah. today. And I would have, I maybe still would say, I don't, I'm not quite there yet, but guess what? I'm really trending hard in that direction. I've been skeptical of him because of the decision-making, but he's winning me over. So that was a great performance. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. The whole concept, let's end it here now that I was going to ask you about a couple of other things, but we've we've gone long. Um, let me just ask you a little bit about the Most Valuable Player Award. And, you know, it's funny. This weekend, entering this weekend, I would have probably said, uh, you know, Rodgers and uh, Mahomes – near the head of the pack, then maybe Roethlisberger, then Derrick Henry and Russell Wilson. That's probably what I would have been. But, you know, the more I've thought about it, I had an interesting conversation with Mike Tirico on Monday, and he was asking me just a little bit about, you know, the voting for MVP and what should an MVP be. And, you know, he was talking about the Steelers last year versus the Steelers this year. And why not Roethlisberger? And I said, hey, I, I, you know, and again, look, I don't know what's going to happen the last four weeks. But based on the first 12 games for every team, if somebody voted for Ben Roethlisberger, I wouldn't think it was stupid. If somebody voted for Josh Allen, I wouldn't think it was stupid. Uh, Derrick Henry, that bothered me on Sunday. So that would probably have a negative impact. Russell Wilson, you know, that's bothered me some the last two or three weeks. But you wonder, what is the MVP for? Is it for Aaron Rodgers lifting his team incredibly the exact same way he lifted it a year ago? Is it Patrick Mahomes being the Michael Jordan of football 
every year and, and all that. I mean, philosophically, where do you stand on MVP? Well, I do think, you, look, you need to be on a winning team, so your the value is for winning. I think the quarterback position is where it gravitates to. You have to be the reason your team wins, a primary reason your team wins, and that's harder to be if you're not that position. So I think it, the way the game's played today, it's hard to not be a quarterback. To me, when I look at all these guys, though, like I wouldn't vote for Roethlisberger at all. You know, I feel like Patrick, if you we, we took all these guys you mentioned and stack list their bad games, you can't find one for Mahomes. You can yeah. find a bad game, but Russell Wilson's had three or four games where maybe he cost them the game. Yeah. You know, Josh Allen will have four games. In the past, he'd have eight games every year that he blew the game. Yeah. He's going to have three games this year where he either almost lost it. Rodgers, you know, against Tampa Bay, that would be the one blemish. I mean, I think Rodgers is amazing. I think if you put him on Andy Reid's offense, he'd be even better than he is now. But um, Patrick Mahomes never has bad games, almost never. You know, sorry, yeah. Chiefs fans, if I jinx him. But to me, that would probably put him over the top, and then I'd have Rodgers there too. I, I think Rodgers can do almost whatever he wants. I just think their weaponry be, beyond Devontae Adams and their style of play with the play-action offense makes them less suited to get into track meets and really play the way that the Chiefs can play. But I think Rodgers can do all those things still. I mean, I think he's right there with Mahomes. Mahomes just is driving the Ferrari every week. And I feel like Ro they've got Rodgers driving, you know, a nice car. It's maybe like the top of the line infinity. Yeah. But, but the one guy's in the Ferrari and that's my MVP. Yeah. I think that's smart. Could you ever see the way the game is played today? Could you ever see a running back winning it? Um. Yeah, sure. If you uh, had a running back on it, if you could somehow get a team that where the running back had, uh, let's just say, fifteen hundred yards receiving and a thousand yards rush, or fifteen hundred yards rushing and a thousand receiving, and he really was the Marshall Falk engine for a team with a Kirk Cousinsy type quarterback who's good, a really good pro quarterback, but maybe it's not on his shoulders. Yeah. I think you could make the case. But Peter, I was, I think, I had this conversation. I think Larry Fitzgerald brought this up a few years ago. Like what backs now are going to go to the hall of fame? Can you name great, one? Great question. No one's going to stick around and get all those yards like Frank Gore. I mean, the game's just changed. So I think it's very hard to have an MVP running back unless it's just record shattering yardage, right? Then people will, will see that and vote for it. If you go over 2000 yards and there's not an amazing quarterback season, your team goes 12 and four. I think you can see that. It's just, when's that going to happen? Well, I mean, it happened in 2012, right, yeah. with uh, with Adrian Peterson. I don't think it's – I'm I'm not in the revolutionary uh, – I, I mean, I like, I think – Jim Wyatt had a great stat last week. I wish I had it, that before the Tennessee game against Cleveland on Sunday, his previous 16 games – he rushed for 2,000 yards on the nose. Okay. Awesome. It's, it is awesome. But, and, and I think the way I look at it right now, when I look at, let's say, Derrick Henry and, and try to figure out where he's going, okay? So he's almost 27. He's 26 and some would be 27 in January. Five years in the NFL, okay? He'll finish his fifth year with 5,500 rushing yards. Yeah. Now, 
you're right to question whether he will want to hang around and get up to 12 or 13,000 yards rushing. Okay. But all I can say is this, he could, if he wants to. All right. First of all, Mike Vrabel's not going anywhere anytime soon. Mike Vrabel loves running the football. And, and in the last two years, uh, Derrick Henry has averaged 106 rushing yards a game, right? So knowing that that's your situation right now, my opinion anyway, I think that I'm not saying he's going to even pass Frank Gore. I doubt he will. But I do think Derrick Henry has a very good chance to be top five yardage running back by the time he retires. He could, but I, you know, I was I did a big comparison on him before the year and looked at other guys who had similar sort of careers with a little bit of a slow run up and then this amazing production of 1500, 1500 yards, really great seasons. It goes away, you know, it just does. So, I mean, yeah. I was even thinking like, what would be the over under for seasons that he's still on the Titans? Is it two and a half? Is it three? Really think of the reality of this game and that three more, three more contracts. So what we're saying is he has, he can get three, three more seasons with the, with the Titans. Well, heck these top quarterbacks are going to be on their teams for 10 more years. You know what I mean? So it goes away. There'll be another guy. He'll get banged up. He'll be in a different offense. All of those things will happen. Um, to where it'll be hard to pile up those yards, in my opinion. So yeah. you can do it amazing. Could could very well be. Could very well be. Um, I really appreciate you joining me, Mike. Thank you. And I, uh, I'm really, really interested uh, a lot, as, as you can tell, sort of in your thought process, because it's so much different from my thought process. I tend to think a little bit more, what is the headline going to be tomorrow? And to try to find somebody to discuss that headline. And then I write about it. But that's one of the things I've learned from reading your column, that you write about a lot of things that I say, that would be a great thing to explore. And I wish I thought of it. So anyway, you give me a lot to think about on Monday, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that, Peter. And I think, you know, what you do better than anybody else is pull, take people behind the curtain. Don't stop doing that. I mean, you can get people on the phone in five minutes and it shows in, in your work. That's where it's totally differentiated. I mean, you're going to have the top three things people are going to talk about. You're going to have an interview with that guy. It's going to be in your column. I, I bet you other people don't even try because you've got that. So I think we all have our things, the way our minds go, you know, and that's mine's in this sort of uh, lane a little bit more. Sometimes I read yours and I'm like, I wish I was doing that. So I think in this world today, there's so much great, you know, coverage and writing out there that really is fun on Monday morning, isn't it? To see what everybody's got. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Hey, well, listen, Mike, thanks so much. Have a great season, huh? You too. Thank you, Peter. My thanks to Greg Cosell and Mike Sando. Tremendously insightful last 50 minutes or so, and I appreciate them sharing their uh, very, very wide base of intelligence with me and with you. Um, Before we go, I want to tell you about a little bit of a change 
starting next week. Starting next week, this podcast, the Peter King podcast, will be streaming on Peacock at 6 p.m. every Wednesday. Now, the podcast will still come out as a regular podcast um, on Wednesday mornings every week, but uh, the podcast will also be done on video beginning next week. And so you'll be able to see me talking to people rather than just listen to me talking to people. Um, so we're really looking forward to that. Hopefully get a little bit of a wider audience for the podcast and uh, force me to go to my A game in the Rolodex. And come on, King, let's get some good guests going. So anyway, we'll, uh, we'll have uh, some special podcasts coming up in the next few weeks. Really looking forward to delivering that to you and delivering it to all people who uh, stream these shows on Peacock. It's really been fun to watch the development of Florio and Sims and Dan Patrick, Isaac, Michael Holly, Michael Smith, uh, Rodney Harrison. It, it's just been so much fun watching and listening to all of the new program under the NBC Sports umbrella. And I'm happy that next week we'll start contributing to that as well. Have a great week, everyone. And by the way, 192 games down, 64 games to go. The NFL somehow, someway has gotten 75% of the regular season played as of now without any games postponed to week 18. It's going to be really interesting to see if they can keep that up as COVID continues uh, to wreak so much havoc around the United States. Listen, have a great week, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week.